our church family over this Christmas holiday. Let's uh, open our Bible to Second Chronicles chapter 7. If you have a prayer slip, visitor slip, we would be glad to receive those and we'll be praying for you this week. If my people, if my people, uh, while in Australia and New Zealand last month with Gwen, we were just amazed at how many times the Lord gave opportunity to, to share the gospel uh, from taxi drivers to um, people we were placed next to at dinner. And often the conversation would go to the shocking accounts on the news cycle of lawlessness and um, violence and crimes that are just beyond belief. And this really opened the door for us to be able to share um, our hope uh, that you know we can't ignore God's commands and just keeping it simple, to love him is the first command, and to love our neighbor as ourselves is the second. We can't just dismiss his word and, and live in a God-belittling world and expect the outcome to be any different. And so the hope that we have is that Christ has come. Through the gospel, our hearts have been changed and we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the light of his dear kingdom, the kingdom of his son. And that through him we know peace and blessing. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In his word we find out what is right and what is wrong and the fact that we don't do what's right. And that's why we need a savior to point us in the right direction. And so we're in need of reviving. We need the constant refreshing of the Lord and for not only his people to be revived and refreshed, but that to trickle out to others who are without Christ. John Piper said, we are in desperate need of God's renewal and refreshing. The idea of revival originates in the reality that on one hand, God is the giver of all spiritual life. Jesus said, come, come to me and I will give you life. In me, you will have abundant life. Piper continues, on the other hand, humans, even those who are born again and part of God's covenant family, from time to time drift into a kind of lifelessness and lethargy and backsliding and indifference and weakness. And when you put those two together, God is the giver of life and man is ever drifting towards lifelessness, what you get is the need for the hope of reviving, coming back to life a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his people. That is what revival is. Anybody in need of revival? I'm in need of his reviving. Listen to some scriptures that verify that. In the book of Habakkuk, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive your work, O God. Psalm 80, verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Hebrews 12, 12, therefore lift up drooping hands. What a a picture this is. Lift up drooping hands and strengthen weak knees. And he was speaking of that in a spiritual sense of following the Lord. I have an acquaintance in the city And he texted me on New Year's Eve. He said, I think your job is becoming more vital by the day. Thanks for helping people spiritually. He was spoken by a lost man. He said, you're a preacher and I want to encourage you. And I was grateful for that message. 
And that is true, isn't it? The gospel is on demand today. It's, the needs are so great, and it won't be received by education. It won't be received by good works. We need a turning to God, a brokenness before him. As we look out at the new year, may we do so with humility, with hope, and an intense commitment to seek the Lord to seek God on his terms, not ours. A humility that acknowledges our utter need for him. Uh, A hope that God's grace is available and greater than any circumstance and, and, and can be received for those who are needy. I thought of several. For those who are seeking to overcome bitterness. For those who are yearning to forget years of sin and shame. For those who are wanting to bear, uh, uh, bury, um, burying wrongs that need to be set right. Uh, for those who are sick of calling the shots in their life. For those who are experiencing great pain and suffering. For those who are fearful over the condition of the world, how often that comes up in conversation where there, there, there's, there's a fear over the circumstances of the way things are right now in the world. That's always been true, but it seems to be heightened in these days. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I was drawn to 2 Chronicles 7 as a text for this first Sunday. And 2 Chronicles is a part of a larger section of Scripture called the historical books beginning in Joshua and ending in Esther. It covers about a millennium of, uh, a millennium of time, uh, a thousand-year period. And this passage in 2 Chronicles, and Chronicles is kind of like the pots and pans of the Bible. I mean, you read 1 Chronicles. Who hasn't struggled with 1 Chronicles 1 through 9? It starts with Adam, and it goes all the way to chapter 9, and it's a genealogy. And you might be tempted to say, what... What does that have to do with anything? Well, it's the chronicler's attempt to remind in First and Second Chronicles of God's, God's sovereign goodness and, and the hope that we have in him from Adam all the way to uh, his um, reconciliation and restoration of his people. But we come to Second Chronicles 7, verse 14, and this is really popular around the 4th of July and around election cycles. And... Since this is an election year and we're ever aware of it, um, I, I want to put it in context because this isn't a verse for America. This is, a, this is really a verse for God's people. And it says in verse 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their, their sin and heal their land. What I'm wanting us to see is that God is a God who delights when people call upon his name. And those who call upon his name, he has promised in no way to cast them out and to do incredible things in their life and in the life of his church. So what's going on in 2 Chronicles? The theme of 2 Chronicles is self-humbling. The chronicler who wrote this book um, is identifying points of national failure where they've turned back from following God and their need to humble themselves before his mighty hand. Now, it's not all bad. You have the reign of David and it's followed by his son Solomon. Put them together and they 
they reigned 80 years. David 40, Solomon 40. And here in 2 Chronicles 7, they have dedicated the temple, and it was a wonder to behold. And that this temple was to be uh, really a, a lighthouse to the nations where prayers were offered. And so calling out for a revival. And I find it interesting that in this passage, God says, when I send, when I shut up the heavens and there's no rain. You mean God would do that? Look at verse 13. When he would command the locusts to devour the land. You mean he would do that? Or send pestilence among my people. You mean God would do that? Why would he do that? Well, as a judgment and as a disciplining measure for them to turn back to him. Do you think God disciplines us in our life, believer? Oh, we can count on it (laughs) in one form or another. Yeah. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines as as a son. And why he loves us, because he loves us, he's conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. One Old Testament scholar, Michael Wilcock, said, what is more, the chronicler and his readers have actually seen both the threatened loss of land in the temple and the prayed-for restoration. These closing verses are a summary also of the fundamental rule of, of cause and effect, which is so much a part of the chronicler's teaching and really an observation from life. If you obey, you will prosper. If you disobey, you will suffer. If you repent, you will be forgiven. Now, these are, that's a wisdom statement. These are general observations. We know that even the righteous suffer. Look at Job. But if you obey, you will know the, the Lord's favor. We should count on that as a general word of wisdom and blessing to us. If we disobey, that should create within us the fear of God. What? If I cross over this line... If I, if I am disobedient to God's commands, I should expect to be chastened for that. Now, we live in a, a day in a culture where nobody wants to take responsibility for any, anything. It's always somebody else's fault. When what needs to happen, what I see in verse 14, is God's holding up a mirror and saying, this is the problem. Look. See, own what you've done and turn to me and I will bring healing to you and and I will restore what is broken. Now, let me just kind of give a little more background here on Chronicles because it's not every day somebody says, you know, I was reading in 2 Chronicles (laughs) and I read this wonderful statement and there are many of them here. There are nuggets of gold in forgotten places in this book. But in the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is one book. And it's the last in the Hebrew Bible. And it's, it it's, uh, was written um, the latest of all uh, the Hebrew books. And it really is a summary of the Bible, uh, the summary of, of, of what God has done and, and giving of a hope and is, is an, an important uh, picture of what we see even in the New Testament in the book of Matthew. It mirrors the book of Matthew incredibly. Uh, where Chronicles begins with the genealogy, what does Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, begin with? A genealogy. Uh, Chronicles ends with a a commission under Cyrus, uh, the pagan king that God used to uh, bring liberation and and freedom to his people to go and rebuild the temple. And how does Matthew end? 
with the great commission of Christ that we go into all the nations and proclaim his word. So there's a, a message of hope, a message of hope for, of a coming Messiah. And so this verse, again, is popular around election time and the 4th of July. But in context, it was really written to Israel. And I'll talk a minute, uh, in just a minute, about how the, the Old Testament promises are ours in Christ. But it was under this dedication of the temple that we see in chapter 7, where feasts and sacrifices were made. It says in verse 11, he finished the house of the Lord and, uh, and the king's house. That's verse 1, rather. And all that Solomon planned to do. So God gave, gave unprecedented success in building this temple. And it was to be a house of prayer. Now, one of the things we notice when we read the Gospels is that Jesus, the temple, is a, a prominent um, mention in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus went into the temple several times, and what did he do there? He cleansed it. Why? Because they were making it a place of uh, merchandise, and uh, they were um, uh, gouging those who came, uh, who came to worship. And Jesus just, he cleansed the temple, and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. So the temple was an important place to offer sacrifices. And the chronicler here references Deuteronomy that we're to humbly repent. God's heart is to forgive. God's heart is to restore. God's heart is to redeem. Have you got it fixed in your mind that somehow God's different than that? That he doesn't want to hear from you? That he doesn't want you to turn from your sinful ways and to call upon him? Do you doubt that if you turn to him in that way, in humility and sincerity, that he will receive you? He will forgive you? He will give you a, a clean slate by his grace? That's the God presented here in Second Chronicles 7. And that's the God we know through Jesus Christ. And it will flow out into righteous deeds. In James chapter 1, it says, this is pure and undefiled religion. Um, that you love the orphan and the widow in her distress. And so the decisive factor for Israel would be that if they repent, if they're honest before God, he would come to them and heal them and bless them. But often they would look for help in all the wrong places. We're prone to do that. We, we want to make our own way out. We want to provide our own salvation. There's no self-salvation ever presented in the Bible. Every time you see self-effort in, in, in an effort to deliver from sin, from circumstances, it always backfires and never delivers. And so often God's people would go into rebellion and they would embrace idols. Now you might be thinking, well, they had idol problem, an idol problem back then, but we're good. No, we don't, we don't have idols. No, we, have a, we read a lot about idolatry in the New Testament. In fact, 1 John 5.21 says in the last verse of that, of that letter, my little children, keep yourself, guard yourself from idols. Then they had syncretism, which is a fancy word of saying, well, it's just not enough to have the scripture and the covenant and uh, the, uh, the layout of worship. We need to add other things to kind of spruce it up. So they would have syncretism come in and that would muddle everything and soon their hearts would be off in another direction. 
idols, syncretism. And you know, I, I think we need to do really some heart searching here. What are the idols of our heart? I think that's the key of Christian living. If we have anything rivaling the absolute place of superiority of Christ in our hearts, it needs to be removed. In 2 Chronicles, would you turn with me? Keep your finger here, we're coming back. But in 2 Chronicles 34, there were a number of high spots in Judah's history where they would have respites or revival. And one of them is under Josiah's reign. And he was eight years old when he became king. And he was a godly king. And they found the scripture, just to kind of highlight the the decay that the law of the book of the law had had been left in the temple. The temple was in tatters, uh, and they went in to clean it up, and they found the book of the law, and it was read to Josiah, and Josiah tore his clothes, which was a sign of what? Intense grief. Look at how far we've fallen. The, the law of God was in the rubble of the temple. It wasn't being read. It was being neglected, and he rescued it. But notice Josiah. Notice the conviction of Josiah with regard to idolatry. Picking up in verse 4, as they grabbed the images and the idolatry, he purged Judah and Jerusalem, verse 3. Verse 4, they chopped it down. Notice the verbs. Track the verbs with me. He chopped up down, verse 4. He chopped what down? The altars to the Baals. He broke in pieces the Asherim. He scattered the dust of uh, of the images. He scattered it over the graves of those who sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 7, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars. I'd call that radical surgery, wouldn't you? That's somebody who's not playing around. That's someone who sees idolatry the way God sees it. But those moments in Israel's history were few and far between. But that is the same type of intensity we need to have with regard to our own battles with sin. We need to put it off. Now, don't go chop down somebody's tree. You see an image in somebody's flower bed, don't hit it with a sledgehammer. This is, I'm, I'm wanting to apply this to, to our lives, believers, to take seriously what God says. What, what do we do in times of spiritual drift? We need, we need to come back to verse 14 and a call to seek the Lord. Now, let's look at these timeless, this is second, secondly on your outline, timeless words for God's people. Let's walk through verse 14, verse by verse, or uh, phrase by phrase, and try to apply this. So Christians receive, let's just note, okay, you're saying in context, this is given specifically to Israel, and it's not for America. That's true. There's not a promise here that any nation who does these things, God's going to bless. This was given to Israel. So how are we to under, maybe you're saying, well, why are we even talking about this this morning? Well, for a very good reason. Christians receive all the promises of the Old Testament through our union with Christ. He's the fulfillment of them. In the original context, my people are the Jews. Israel, God's covenant with Israel was a conduit to bring the Messiah to us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that if you were in Christ... You are, you, are, you are a son of God. You're a child of God through faith in him. 
and that there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. That is the new covenant we're under right now. So when it says my people, it's no longer the Jewish people in context here. He's speaking to my people Israel. But I want you to see the expanse of how this verse reaches even to us. My people are not merely the Jewish ethnic people of God, but the blood-bought people of the Messiah, united to him in faith. And so the reference to the land, he says here in verse 14, I'll heal their land, does not apply to the land of the church, nor is it referring to the land of America, because why? We're a sojourning people. We don't have any land. We're, we're longing for the city whose architect and builder is, is God. So, while Israel had a land that was a part of that was a part of God's. Um, I don't know what's happening, Cor. Yeah, good. All right, let's uh, speak up. So. Um, the reference here to heal their land, this is God's specific reference to, uh, to Israel and uh, not to America. So it's a misapplication to say if Christians will repent, God will heal America. We have no such promises in the Bible. There is no promise here for a nation being spiritually healed if the church in that nation repents. I'm not saying that that won't happen, but I'm saying that's not the promise of what is said here. The application is if believers humble themselves and repent and turn from their wicked ways and pray to God, that God will do a mighty work in and through the church, through the church, however he pleases, however he pleases. So while we're looking, looking at this chapter, we're to remember that, that our land is, is a spiritual hope and reality that God will give in the future. But right now we're on mission with him. And so, my people, if you're in Jesus Christ, you are the people of God. And in context with Second Chronicles, he's speaking of my people, Israel. And we're able to see what kind of God he is. And he says, furthermore, and following the verse, who humble themselves. I think one of the great heartaches I have about the church's um, witness in America is, is the arrogance and the pride that often accompanies how Christians behave in our culture. It should not be. We are to be a humble, gracious, thankful, magnanimous people. The greatest adjustment we need to make in our understanding is that worship is something we, we must first do to ourselves before we can really offer anything acceptable to God. To humble ourselves is to surrender our will to God without condition to take his principles as our, our precepts. And you know, when you think of how pride, what a devastating sin that is, all the way back to the garden even to now, because of pride, marriages are shattered. Because of pride, friendships are ended. Because of pride, churches split. Because of pride, nations are brought to their knees. Because of pride, people perish in their sins. I'm really not that sinful. I really don't need a Savior. God will accept me as I am. He ought to be glad I'm even interested in Him. 
God's remedy for pride is humility, to see ourselves as we truly are. In Luke 5, when Jesus showed his power to Peter, and he said to Peter after fishing all night, put your net in for a catch. And Peter said, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught a thing. And they followed in obedience, and the nets were full. And Peter, seeing who Jesus was, says, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinful man. Depart, depart from me. Isaiah, when he saw himself in light of God's holiness, um, humbled himself. And so, what about us? Could it be said of us as a body that the mark of our gathering is that they're humble people? That doesn't mean, you know, people who lack conviction, people who are courageous. It means that we understand and have never gotten over what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Our sins are great. His grace is greater still. Humility is, is, is something God calls for here, who humble themselves, who are sick of calling the shots in their life. I'm sick of doing it my way. Lord, I humble myself before you, and I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to obey your word and apply it to my life. Carl Henry once said, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? David Mathis offers his counsel. Don't wait till God's humbling hand descends. Walk the path today on your knees. Mark now the trail to heaven. Learn to look Godward as a reflex long before your great humbling comes. And when it does, under God, you'll be ready. Next, he says, pray. Pray. When's the last time You've gotten alone with God and prayed. Straight up. Not talk about prayer. Not entertain, not entertain the thought of prayer in your, your, your mind. No, you, you've gotten alone and maybe you've gotten down on your knees in a quiet place in your house and talked to God. Confessed your sins. Praised Him for who He is. Ask him to meet needs in your life. We have not because we ask not. And really, a prayerless life is basically saying to God, oh, God, I got this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really need you involved. I would never say that, but I got this. God says to his people in 2 Chronicles, humble yourself and pray. That really is a, real, a first sign of humility is I'm talking to God about my problems. I'm talking to God about my needs. And then he says, seek my face. Have you ever been in a crowded area looking for somebody, maybe an airport terminal, and you're looking at faces? You're wondering, where is, where is she <laughs> among the sea of humanity? Uh, if you look longingly, intensively, intensively, uh, intensely, rather, fervently, uh, you concentrate on all, with all your effort to find the person you're looking for. God wants us to search for him in that way. If you seek for me with all your heart, Jeremiah wrote, that's in desperation, that's in expectation, that's in anticipation that God really responds if I seek him in that way. To look for him longingly, intensely, fervently, seeking, 
and you will what? Find. And then he says, turn from their wicked ways. Now this takes some courage. And you can only do that if you're pursuing humility. Because if you're not humble, you don't think you've really done anything wrong. You're like the flow of the culture. (laughs) I didn't do it. I shouldn't be held accountable for that. But God calls them to turn from their wicked ways. That you call sin what God says it is. Word for word. Not an indiscretion. Not an oversight. No, Lord, you call this sin. It's in my life. It's got to go. I'm going to turn from it. I need the strength to do it. So what does God promise to do thirdly? He will hear, he will forgive, and he will heal. I can't think of any greater statement than that. And all of these are verified in the New Testament. That if we call to the Lord, he will hear us, he will forgive us, and he will heal us. Uh, Maybe not uh, fully from the way of this world that we have an appointment with death, but to heal our hearts spiritually, to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace, to know you're forgiven and received and adopted into his family, that's God's healing to a sin-sick soul. God will hear us. God will forgive us. What would it take for you to know God's forgiveness in your life today? Have you ever even thought about it? You got a burden on your heart. You got shame you're carrying. You need a new start. You need to know that it's possible for you to move on. What would it take for you to receive God's forgiveness in your life today? I think John pointed us in that direction in Psalm 51 as we sang this morning. As David confessed his sins to the Lord, God is faithful to forgive, to heal and to hear us. So what should our response be? Let's close with this application. What should our response be to this beautiful statement that God called his people to in the, under the old covenant and which we should pursue as believers? We should be believers who set aside special times for prayer and fasting. We should set aside special times for prayer and fasting. Through the years, We have challenged this body to spend time in prayer and in fasting. And fasting is going without food or something for the purpose of seeking God. Um, It's, I like Piper's explanation of it. It's, It's saying, Lord, when the hunger comes, Lord, I want you more than this. And how rarely do we get to that point when we have something, a desire, crying out for our attention, do we get to the point of saying, Lord, I'm willing to do without that that I might have your, your, your presence and your power in my life. To set aside special times of prayer and fasting. We have prayer gatherings regularly in the course of, of, of church life. Are you affording yourself to them? Are you coming and being a part of them? We have a, had a men's prayer breakfast this morning. There's ladies' prayer gathering. There are uh, prayer chains and groups in our connect groups. Uh, 
Maybe, maybe some of you would even be led to say, you know, I feel a need to really seek God and grabbing a bro- some brothers or uh, if you're a lady, some sisters to call out to the Lord at special times of prayer. Let's, let's, spend, let's spend Mondays on, on this month calling out to God for him to do what only he can do. And the promise of answers are great and awesome. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it'll be open. For who among you, if his son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly Father give good good gifts to you who ask him? I think secondly, a point of application would be that we need to repent and walk in new paths of obedience. This morning, this challenge with regard to idolatry and things that grip our heart that only God should have that kind of sway, we need to lay down. We need to lay down. We need to repent and walk in new paths of obedience. Maybe you've neglected something in your walk with Christ. Maybe you've not been the witness that you need to be. Maybe you haven't been faithful with your tithes and offerings. Maybe you've been lethargic. Your hands are drooping. And the call of Scripture this morning is that you would lift up your hands to God for Him to revive you and strengthen you. To repent and walk a new path of obedience. And then, believer, for you and I to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a command. Ephesians 5.18, this is a command for you and I to live moment by moment under the control and the aid and the strength of the Spirit of God who dwells within us. Bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit and that God would so move in us as His people that that we would be the witnesses He wants us to be, that we we would see Him help, help us to put off bondages and things that are displeasing to Him. And then I think finally, a renewed determination to live and share the gospel. To live and share the gospel. This year, this time of year, really is a reminder of how quickly time goes by. I know that's cliche-ish, but it, it just, it's a vapor. It's a time to look back with gratitude, to look forward with hope, and to assess what is really important. And I pray that you would hear this call of God to us to seek him afresh and anew. Maybe you're, you've come today and, and you're without Christ. We're really glad you're here. Maybe you're visiting and wondering what church is about, what the Bible's about. Maybe you've been here all your life. And you've looked for help, spiritual help, in all the wrong places. You've read this book, and you've gone to this seminar, and you've bought something online. You've tried something new, and it just hasn't ever lasted. What we find here in the Bible is a God who calls us to call unto him, to seek him with all our heart. And maybe that has brought you today to the cross. God has spoken magnanimously 
powerfully in a once-for-all sacrifice through Jesus Christ. How are you made right with God? It's through Jesus Christ. It's not by works of righteousness that we do. Hear me clearly. I've been a pastor for a long time. I do religious work, visit sick people, write letters to people, do Bible studies and lead prayer meetings. None of that will forgive one of my sins. My only hope on that day I stand before Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. That's why he came. That's why he died. He rose again from the dead that sinners high and low, rich or poor, might find refuge in him. So for you, if you're without a saving relationship with Christ, this morning would be, I'm gonna turn from my wicked ways. Let's use biblical language. I'm gonna turn from my biblical ways, which is what the Bible calls repentance. And I'm going to believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Where is he? He's he's seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven. Will he really hear me? Oh, I can guarantee you, he'll, he'll hear you. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you call unto him today? Would you call unto him, Lord, save me? Lord, help me. I humble myself under your mighty hand. I bow before your authority, doing me what only you can do. Let's bow together in prayer as we prepare to sing this final song. It is a time to commit. It is a time to respond in faith, which doesn't require you to leave where you are. But I think it is a call for all of us to say, Lord, I I seek you. I believe you. Father, lead us now, we pray. In these closing moments, that your will would be uppermost in our mind and our hearts would be completely yours in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.